0: Hey there, my name is Roy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And can you believe that we're at the end of summer? Yeah, I mean, September is just around the corner, and it's hard to believe, but that means that we're at the end of our series that we're currently working through called Summer Hymns. I mean, we could keep it going if you, you want to, but then we'd have to change the name to Fall Hymns or Autumn Hymns, and yeah, it's just too much work, so this is the conclusion to our series. Well, today we look at a favorite of the church called Victory in Jesus. Now, Victory in Jesus was written by a man named Eugene Bartlett. Bartlett was born in Missouri in 1885. He married his high school sweetheart. He worked as a singer, a music producer, publisher, and a songwriter. Life was good. His hymn book was in high demand. His musical teaching was in high demand. And everything was going really well. But at the age of 53, Bartlett had a stroke that left him unable to walk or be able to talk. One night, while bedridden, bedridden Bartlett thought about his life. And how God had walked with him during the good times, but God was also walking with him during the bad. And he wrote these words down on a piece of paper. He wrote, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Now, story has it that Eugene Jr. was at a revival meeting one night when the keynote speaker got up to speak and gave an incredible sermon, a very powerful sermon. At the end of that sermon, the, the, the speaker gave an invitation for people to come forward to accept Jesus, and no one came forward. Seeing this, Eugene Jr. felt this urge that God was urging him to go up and sing his dad's hymn, a song that had never been publicly sung before. So, as he sang Victory in Jesus, it said that more than 50 people came forward that night and gave their life to Jesus. I mean, Victory in Jesus. We all love a victory. Whether it's you're cheering on your favorite sports team for victory, or whether it's you're playing a board game with your family and you just want to win, you want the victory so bad, or, or whether it's on the battlefield, the goal is always victory. Now, I don't know about you, but I love victory. I love action movies, I love, I love the stunts, I love the fast-paced action, but I especially love action movies with a historical basis to them. And one of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. Now, Gladiator is about, takes place in ancient Rome, and it's about a Roman general named Maximus. And Maximus is loyal to the emperor, but when the emperor's jealous son kills his dad so he can become the emperor, Maximus knows there's something wrong, something's fishy. And he refuses to pledge his allegiance to his newly crowned fake emperor. And so as a result, he's treated as a traitor and cast out from the Roman world, where he finds himself a slave to a gladiator trainer. Well, Maximus is a great fighter, and and eventually he finds himself fighting in the Roman Colosseum as entertainment for thousands of the Roman citizens that he once fought for in a different sense. And he finds himself in front of the emperor fighting. In one great scene, maybe one of the best scenes of the movie, Maximus and some other prisoners have been given some basic armor and been given some basic fighting gear, and they gather in the center of the arena, and the crowd cheers and chants. It's thousands of people, a very intimidating spot, ready to watch them fight for their lives, but everybody knows that they're not supposed to come out of this fight alive. They don't know who or what their opponent will be. Behind some large gates against the wall, their opponent waits and they don't know what it is. And you can be assured that what's behind that gate is faster, bigger, and better equipped. And so as the slave fighters stare with bewilderment and fear at the large gate in the distance, waiting for their opponent to emerge, they look to Maximus, who rumor has it has some military fighting experience so Maximus gathers the men and he gives them a pep talk and some instruction. And he says, whatever comes out these gates. Whatever comes out these gates, he gives them some instruction. This is what you need to remember. Whatever comes out these gates, this is what you cannot forget. This is, don't forget what I'm telling you right now. And Jesus gives his disciples a very similar talk. On the night before he's to be crucified. He begins by saying, I don't have much time to talk, I'm going to leave you soon. And he gives them these last-minute instructions. He essentially says, whatever comes out these gates, Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, look at me. You need to remember these things. Don't forget what I'm about to tell you. And his words, well, they apply to you and me as well. Imagine standing in the middle of the Colosseum of life, And your eyes are staring at the gate of your future. And you have no idea what is coming next. You have no idea what stands behind that gate. In 2019, we didn't know what stood behind the gate of 2020. You have no idea what stands behind the gate of your tomorrow or the later today. And Jesus is there with you. And he'd speak to you the same way that he spoke to the disciples. Words we find recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 16. And maybe like the disciples, Jesus needs to say some things that you don't want to hear. But that's what love looks like. It's not all soft, encouraging, and inspiring words. It's, sometimes it's convicting, challenging, but loving. Verse 1 says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. And he basically comes right out of the gate saying, I'm telling you these things now. So that when that gate bursts open, and that thing, that thing that looks like it's too big, that thing that looks like it's too strong, that thing that looks like it's overwhelming, won't cause you to turn and run. The NIV version says, I tell you these things so that you will not fall away. The message version says, "I I tell you these things to prepare you for the rough times ahead. And so the disciples who have walked with Jesus for three years, Jesus now warns them, if you're not careful, you will stumble. You will fall away. Have you ever fallen? Have you ever fallen down in front of people? Or tripped? I was 13 years old at an Oshawa Generals hockey game. And I I was going up the stairs. And one of the stairs that I stepped on was slippery. I think it was popcorn butter or something. And I slipped and I fell on the stairs in front of hundreds of people. Now, you would hope people would jump up. And they would see if you're okay. Come to your aid. Help you up. Instead, a couple hundred people all cheered in a mocking way and I jumped up and I got out of there really fast. I mean, embarrassing for a 13-year-old who already feels self-conscious and awkward. But when you trip and you fall, you want to know right away what was it that caused that fall. You want to know what the reason was. I mean, if I knew that that step had butter on it, I would have stepped over that step. If you you have a porch, if you have porch stairs and one of them is kind of broken, you know, step over that one and keep going. If you have a living room full of toys and you know they're full of toys, you know as a parent, don't walk through there in the dark. Don't step across the Legos in the dark. And so Jesus says, I'm talking to you now so you have an idea of what you're dealing with. So you won't stumble. So you won't fall away from your faith. Verse 2, he becomes a little more specific. He says, for you will be expelled from the synagogues. So he's like, just so you know, you'll get kicked out of church. You know that place where, where you, you, you want, that you center your life around, that you, the place where you want to be accepted? They're going to kick you out. And then he says, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. Disciples are like, wait those who kill us? Jesus, I think you misspoke. I think you meant those who attempt to kill us. Because we're on your side, Jesus. And those who, those who kill us? good, Good one. And Jesus just stares at them. It's not a joke. Silence has now filled the room. And they're thinking, I mean, Jesus, it was great when we were we were going with you from spot to spot we were come, we'd come to town people would come from everywhere we're like rock stars on tour and the idea jesus that one day you were going to become king and by association us being your guys we were going to become royalty but wait they're going to kill us i mean when you said come follow me jesus i don't know if we knew that was part of the deal i mean you didn't even say if they kill us you said they're going to kill us. Then in verse 4, he says, "Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning." And he basically says, "I'm telling you this so that you have warning." I don't want you to think that I didn't know this was going to happen. I don't want you to think that this caught me off guard because I'm God. Listen, I know what's coming through those gates, so you need to be ready. I don't want you to come to the conclusion that, that things hit you out of nowhere and, and that I'm surprised and therefore I'm, a, I'm not in control of what's going on. I'm telling you this so that when the gate opens, you have trust in me. Your confidence doesn't erode. You don't try to run. That when the gate opens, you, are, you can say, remember guys, Jesus said this would happen. A few weeks ago, I was doing some marriage prep with a, a young girl that was part of my old youth group and Her and her fiance are getting married in a couple weeks. And now marriage is a blessing, it's an incredible gift from God. But so in the marriage prep, it involved me giving some healthy warning because after the wedding is the honeymoon, and after the honeymoon, well, reality can start to set in. And after the honeymoon, every marriage has a gate. And some of the things that lay behind that gate are unknown, but some of the things are common among many couples. And if you aren't ready, especially early on, you can feel like you're the only couple struggling in this area, and you may even think we're the only ones who's ever faced this. And maybe the only option now is divorce. And so we talked about things like communication and listening and goals and expectations and, and needs. And like any young couple who's madly in love, it, they felt like there's not really any issues in their relationship. And and they kind of felt like it's always going to be that way. But there are some things that come through the gate that are commonplace. There, there will be communication challenges. There will be discussions about money and kids and careers and and you just need to be ready for those times and so i gave them some some tips like if she has a hard day at work and needs to rant she isn't always looking for you to fix it husbands because we know that we that you think you can fix it in about 20 seconds sometimes she just wants you to listen with the tv off and eye contact huge bonus and so jesus is telling the disciples. There are storms coming. I just want you to be ready. But often when you struggle with an issue, whether you're married or not, it's because you didn't know that this is normal. And that's why the pilot will come on the intercom when you're flying and say, Oh folks, looks like we've hit some turbulence. Buckle up. We'll get through this before long. And so what happens when that turbulence comes, you think, well, we knew this was coming. I'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But when the pilot doesn't come on and tell you and all of a sudden you suddenly hit turbulence and no one warns you, your confidence is shaking just a little bit. You buckle up that seat a little and you hold on a little tighter. Well, this week I was in the mall with my wife, Jen, and my daughter, Janelle. And we were getting Janelle set into her new apartment in Toronto for university. And we went to the mall to get some of the last-minute things that she needed for her apartment. Now, I was in a different part of the mall than my wife and my daughter when the fire alarm went off. It was loud. It was, it, there was no doubt about what was going on. Well, I didn't know this, but Jen saw a sign on the door that said they'd be testing the fire alarm on that day. So when it went off, she didn't flinch. She just kept going about doing what she was doing. Me, I didn't see the sign. And so the alarm goes off and I'm thinking, we need to get out of here. I've got to go find my family. This isn't normal. Something's, something must, could be wrong here. Let, let's bail. Let's get out of here. The only reason I didn't is because I looked around and not one other person around me, employees included, even reacted in the slightest. Apparently, I was the only one who didn't see the sign. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. This happens in church. People come to church. Someone tells them, if you follow Jesus, life will be great, easier. Or or the church only preaches the parts that are easy to digest. And then something happens that doesn't line up with the way Christianity was presented to them, and they leave the faith. They abandon ship. And what doesn't help is when people in the church pretend that life is all good for them, like that, the way, that they, when they follow Jesus, the way they follow him, they now have a flawless life. that They have a godly marriage that knows no storms. And if you raise kids the Jesus way, well, it's easy. My job's great. Life is great. Everything's great. Thanks for asking. But pull back the curtain. And their godly marriage still faced some hard, hard times. They raised their kids in the church, and yet their kids still rebelled. There's been health issues they don't talk about. And life has been one obstacle after another, and it's because of their faith in Jesus that they have stood strong. Except they don't tell anybody that. They act like life is perfect. And you think, well, they're not struggling. Why am I struggling? They don't seem to doubt. Why do I doubt? Why do I have trials when they don't? Because they're pretending it's all good. Which is not helpful at all. What would be helpful is for someone who's been there to be real and say, in our family, there have been some things that came through that gate. We didn't always know what was coming. But we were ready. We knew that God was fighting for us. And although it was hard... We stand here today, and things will come through your gate, too. Don't run. Stand in there. Lean on God. See, that's helpful. Christian Smith is a sociologist who wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in this book, he calls much of what Christianity is for people in North America today different than what Jesus taught. Instead, he calls Christianity today for many North Americans moral therapeutic deism. Now, moral therapeutic deism believes five things. Number one, it believes that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay, fair enough. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in, any, in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Sounds like a genie. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that suffering is part of the deal. Christianity teaches that some of that happiness that you long for can come from suffering and from persecution as it identifies you with Christ. Christianity teaches that the the happiness and blessing comes with following Jesus, but it's not the goal. And it's not the same as cultural happiness as it would be defined. Christianity teaches that doing good isn't enough to go to heaven. So, when you believe following Jesus is about being happy and feeling good about yourself, and then Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus says, you will be persecuted because of your affiliation with me, we're left dazed and confused. Kenda Dean, author of the book Almost Christian, says, moralistic, therapeutic deism has little to do with God or a sense of divine mission in the world. It offers comfort, bolsters self-esteem, helps solve problems, and lubricates interpersonal relationships by encouraging people to do good, feel good, and keep God at an arm's length. And often the church is the one that teaches this version of faith. And so when life doesn't add up to what you've been taught of Jesus, it should be no surprise when we see people abandoning their faith, people of all ages. Be ready. What's behind those gates isn't just a bunch of puppies and hamsters. Trouble will come. Consider yourself warned. Now, as someone who's played sports and been led by various different coaches and even coached myself, when you're the underdog team and you're trying to rally your team to fight a bigger, stronger opponent, you let them know, A, here's what you're up against, but B, This is what it's going to take for you even though everyone thinks you can't do it this is what it's going to take for you to get victory you tell them things like it's going to take everything you have whatever team has the most heart will come out on top whatever team can dig deep within themselves will have victory today but jesus never does that he never tells them guys you will face hard trials hardships but if you believe in yourselves if you'll just work hard Just leave it all out in the field. You will be victorious today. Because the gospel message has never been, you can do it. Out hustle, out work, show more heart. The gospel message is, you can't do it. But with God, victory will come. There's a saying that you've likely heard all your life. And it's a saying that maybe you've even used With good intentions, mind you. When someone's going through something incredibly tough, we will say things like, Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. And we mean that in the best way possible. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians something to the same sentiment, but the context of what he speaks of is when you come up against temptation, not the trials we usually offer this advice during. God won't give you more than you can handle. But we've heard it lots. The problem with that is the focus of the statement is me, how tough I am, how much I can endure. The focus isn't God, but me. God won't give me more than I can handle. Could it be that God does give you more than you can handle? Because if I can handle it, why do I need God? God gives me more than I can handle often, but with God I don't fear. With God, I can overcome. With God, victory is on the horizon. Without God, I'm exposed. See, Jesus doesn't appeal to the disciples to dig deep within themselves for whatever comes through the gates of life. That's the worst thing he could have said to them. See, Jesus is about to leave them, and they will be on their own, and for, for them to go out into the world with this false, self, self, uh, false sense of confidence that there's nothing we can't handle, boys, that would have been disastrous. Instead, they begin to understand, Jesus, you're leaving. And now, I don't know if I can do this on my own. And Jesus is good. Now you understand. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is get to this place where you're able to say, I can't do this. I need help. Sometimes the most spiritual prayer that you can pray is, God, I need help. I can't do this on my own. And this doesn't line up with our Western culture, our self-help society. I need help. For some of you, those are hard words to say. But it's here where you meet God. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says, When I'm weak, I am strong. Because when you're able to say, I can't do it, I need help, you open up the door for the power of God to be displayed in your life in powerful ways. The inability to say, I need help. I think that's what caused Peter so much grief. Because on the same night that Jesus has this conversation with the disciples, he tells Peter that before sunrise, Peter, you'll disown me three times. To which Peter, he's stunned, embarrassed, pride-filled. And he says, no, no way. No way, Jesus. There's no way. Andrew, maybe. Jude? Likely. Judas? I'm not sure about that one. But not me? Never. And what he's saying is, you don't have to worry about me. Jesus, I got this. He's expressing his confidence in himself. And we know that Jesus' prediction comes true, just as he told. Jesus tells Peter, here's what's coming through the gate. And Peter says, stand back, Jesus. Jesus. I got this. His response should have been, Jesus, I I have a hard time believing that I would do that, but but who knows? I need your help. Stand strong. There's a a story in the Old Testament. And it's this battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites in Exodus 17. And I mean, you read many times as you're reading through the Old Testament that the Israelites would come up against another nation as they traveled to the Promised Land. And what's understated is this, that the Israelites had no military training whatsoever. They were slaves. For 400 years, they were slaves. They knew they'd never fought anything. They knew nothing but being a slave. Zero battle experience. In fact, it was their job to not fight back. The Egyptians... We were enslaving them, and if they ever even thought about fighting back, they would be beat down. And so now they're out in the wilderness, and they're fighting these well-trained armies. And now they're facing the Amalekites, and it looks like it's going to be an absolute slaughter. And so Moses says to Joshua, I want you to go and I want you to lead the army today. You take them into battle with the Amalekites. Meanwhile, I'm going to go up on this hillside. From the hillside, Moses could see the whole entire battlefield. And so Exodus tells us that Moses goes up there and he begins to pray. And so at some point, Moses realizes that when he raises his hands in prayer, the Israelites begin to win the battle. But when his arms get tired and he drops them, they start to lose. And so he realizes this, this correlation, so he keeps his arms raised as long as he can, but they begin to tire. He calls over a couple of friends, and they hold his arms up for him when he can't. At that point, God doesn't say, hey, 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 that doesn't count. You have to do this yourself. No, it counts. And so the Israelites win the battle against all odds. And they likely celebrated a bunch of untrained slaves against a mighty army. And maybe the Israelites started chanting Joshua's name. Because, I mean, he led them into victory. Now what we know is at some point Moses renamed Joshua from Hoshea. His old name was Hoshea; It's now Joshua. We don't know exactly when that happened. But what if... What if it happened after this victory? Imagine the Israelites chanting, Hoshia, 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 which means the one who saves. That would make sense. That's what it would have felt like. Hoshia, you led us to victory. But perhaps Moses calls him over and says, Hey, Hoshia, nice win. Great victory. But I need you to know what was happening behind the scenes while you were out there fighting. Because it's not about you, Hoshea. And it's not about me. It was God's victory. He saved us. Without Him, this day would have been completely different. And maybe, maybe that's where He renames Him from Hoshea to Joshua. Hoshea means the one who saves, Joshua means the Lord saves. See, this is the reason we often raise our hands in worship and in prayer. And maybe this is an uncomfortable expression for you. You you never raise your hands when you're praying or when you're you're worshiping. But it's just symbolic. It's symbolic of, God, I'm weak. I need help. I need you. It's this physical expression that says, I need help. I need you. It's not weakness to ask for help. It takes incredible strength sometimes to do so. When I'm weak, I am strong. Maximus' words in the movie Gladiator was this Whatever comes out these gates, he would go on to say "We, we have a better chance of survival if we stay together. If we stay together, we survive. In other words, you can try and do this yourself. But you will fail. But if you understand that you need help, we will have victory. Eugene Bartlett, when he wrote Victory in Jesus, it didn't come from a place of strength. It didn't come when life was good. It came when Bartlett was at his weakest physically. Physically weak, he discovered victory. No matter what comes out that gate, it doesn't matter if you know that Jesus is your strength. Let's pray. Father God, for some of us, asking for help is really, really hard. We, We think that asking for help is weakness, but we know how incredibly strong and how difficult it is to actually do so. And God, it's okay for us to to need help, because there's only so much we can do on our own. But if we understand that when we rely on God at our side, we can do so much more than we ever imagined. We can be victorious in areas of our life that we never imagined. So God, every one of us is facing down the gate of our lives, behind it stands the unknown. And we don't need to be afraid. Because we know that whatever comes our way, we can stand with you at our back. With people around us. That will lift our arms in the times where we can't do it anymore. On our own. And ultimately, the victory is the Lord's. Amen.